Uh, Let us turn to Genesis 39 as we pick back up in our story uh, that we have been uh, learning about, uh, the story of Joseph, a very famous story, even if you're not uh, one who is uh, all that uh, knowledgeable of the Scriptures because of the Broadway show and and because of just the uh, remarkable story before us, many uh, know the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors and the favoritism of his father. And over the last two weeks, we've gotten the backstory of Joseph's life, the chaotic and dysfunctional family life that Joseph was a part of, the favoritism of his father that created all kinds of elements of hatred and envy amongst his other brothers. And we learned last week that uh, anger and that jealousy and that envy Uh, really began to foment, if you will. It began to rise to the surface. What started out with mockery and slander and hatred of the heart moved to hatred in action. Uh, We we finished up last week hearing the story of how uh, Joseph had been sent on a journey by his father to go check in on his brothers to make sure all was well with them as they were pasturing the flocks uh, of uh, animals. And he goes, and while he's still far off, the scripture says, they begin to conspire on how to kill him, how to get rid of him. What an unthinkable thing that a group of brothers... Uh, would go after, even if they did hate him, that they would go as far as saying, we want to kill him, we want to put an end to his life. And through a course of events, they begin to think maybe that's not the best plan of attack. They put him into a pit, leaving him for dead. And, uh, and while he is screaming for his life, probably being injured in the fall down into the pit, as he's screaming, they sit down and they have a meal. And they enjoy uh, the sustenance of food and, and the camaraderie of the ten brothers who had uh, put together this plan to get rid of the one they all hated. But then something amazing takes place. At the right time, in the right place, a group of traders, uh, the brothers have someone to sell. And so for 20 shekels of silver, by the way, uh, 20 shekels of silver would have been the price for an injured slave, okay, back in the day. And that tells us that there was good reason to believe that Joseph was in fact injured during his time with his brothers. And so he's delivered into the hands of these traitors and he is uh, chained up uh, in some way, shape, or form, put to an animal, if you will, to walk behind it and make the long trip to Egypt. And that's where we pick up our story uh, this morning. And it doesn't get much better. It does for a little bit. But we're going to learn that while things seem to be looking up for Joseph, right when he thinks things are good, they're going to fall back down into the pit. So let's look at Genesis chapter 39. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab that pew Bible or that Bible that's in the chairs. You can find our passage on page 33. I'm going to read it, and then we'll ask for God's blessing this morning. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought him from the Ish- had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had bought, brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him the overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of Joseph, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of, my, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is, no, he is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Let's stop there. Father God, we come before you, and uh, we thank you again for this object lesson, this real life story of a man who seemingly does everything right, Lord, who is obedient who is humble, who is willing to to serve and honor you in all ways, and yet finds himself in times of great difficulty. Lord, I know that this morning there are those who have come to this place who find themselves in that same spot, who have this week endured great hardship and great trouble. Lord, who find themselves week in and week out finding themselves in the same spot that they were. And because of that, Lord, depression and despair fill their heart. Lord, I pray this morning that you would remind us that in those moments you are there. For those, Lord, who have come into this place and have had one of the greatest weeks of their lives, business has gone well, the athletic event that they were a part of uh, went exactly as they thought, there's money in the bank account, the kids are healthy. God, some here are living on the mountaintop, and I want to remind, uh, be reminded this morning, Lord, that whether in the valley or in the mountaintop, you are there. Still others, Lord, are here, and they're struggling with that same old sin, that same old temptation, that temptation that drives them crazy, that brings just such great trouble to their lives, that temptation that, Lord, every Sunday they come and they say, I won't do it again, I promise This is the week I find victory. Lord, I pray this morning that from this text we will learn that in our times of trouble, in our times of triumph, and in our times of temptation, that we would be reminded you are there with us. And that this truth that you are with us would be a truth that would change the way we uh, experience life. It would change the way that we look at the struggles and the triumphs of our day. And that we would turn to you in the good, the bad, and even the ugly of life. Now, Lord, speak to your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to look at our passage with an overarching theme that God is everywhere. You need slogans and a. That's a play on words from one of the most um, influential slogans and ad campaigns uh, of my life. In the mid-'80s, Visa uh, came up with a slogan Uh, that uh, has been a part of their marketing plan. Visa, we're everywhere you want us to be. And Visa is masterful in in one quick little slogan and soundbite telling you exactly what they're trying to communicate. If you are a Visa card holder, uh, then you can have confidence, you can have faith, you can have trust that wherever you find yourself, whether it's in America or some other far-fung place in the world, whether you find yourself needing to use the card for good times or bad, whether you find yourself in a time of emergency or a time where you just want to spend a little more on yourself in a moment of excess, that whenever you need them, when you place down that card, you can rest assured that it's going to accomplish what you need it to accomplish. And who hasn't experienced this? Who hasn't experienced the, uh, the great uh, comfort 
that when there's no cash in your hand, to be able to, whether it's because of a flat tire or a broken down vehicle, or maybe it's because of a, a furnace that breaks during a polar vortex, that it sure is nice to know that there's some credit where, where that moment is just right to pay for that unnecessary bill. Or maybe it's that moment where, where that moment is just right. Maybe you find yourself with your, your spouse and, and you're at a place where you, you can go and enjoy a nice meal. You don't have the cash to, to do that. How great is it to be able to set down that credit card and be able to say, you know what, I'll, I'll take care of it later, but it's sure nice to have today. You see, Visa understands that uh, it is good, it's comforting to know that we can be your ace in the hole. We can be there whenever, however, in, in whatever way we need to be to bring you some level of comfort. But herein lies the problem this morning. For far too many of us, we have learned, and Joseph's going to learn, that no credit card, no credit limit will help him in his hour of need. Some of us have experienced that in our own lives. I have spoken the last couple of weeks of the death of my brother. And I want you to know, no credit card could have brought him back. I remember just not too long ago, about a year and a half ago, sitting uh, in a doctor's office with a group of doctors who, who told my wife she had cancer. I couldn't put my credit card down and say, you want to try that again? There's a lot of credit on that card. Let's, let's talk through this. I was watching a biography of Steve Jobs, one of the richest men in the history of the United States. And no amount of money, at one point they said he was worth more than $500 million, more than, than all of us combined, right? But it wouldn't take away the cancer that was eating his body up. You see, we have problems in our world that while Visa says we're everywhere you want us to be, it's a fallacy. Because at the end of the day, there are things that credit can't buy. There are moments in our lives where nothing in this world will be able to answer the struggles and the situations we find ourselves facing. Joseph found himself in an impossible situation at the start of Genesis 39. And we are going to hear over and over again. In fact, seven different times in this passage of Scripture, we will see the phrase, God was with him. And what we are hearing is, is that God is announcing to Joseph, and God is announcing to us today, that whether in times of trouble, whether in times of triumph, or whether in times of temptation, God is there. Now, whether or not we, first of all, believe that, or whether or not we, we grab a hold of that, is up to you. But God wants to announce to us this morning that he is with us, and that he will help us walk through it if we are willing to give him the room in our life to do so. I want you to notice again seven times in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 21, in verse 23, five different places, seven different times, God announces that he is with Joseph. Now that brings up an important question. Because as we look at Joseph's life, one of the things that we have to do as Bible students is we have to ask the question, well, okay, I get it, it's in black and white. God was with Joseph. I can't dispute that. If I believe the word of God to be true, if I believe what Genesis is saying to be true, I have to at face value believe that God was with Joseph. But at the end of the day, really, that's great. But you don't know right now what I'm dealing with, Tim. You don't know the struggle. You don't know the pain. You don't know the sorrow that, that is uh, being addressed in my life. And what I'm here to find out is not that God was with some guy who lived thousands of years ago. I want to know, is God with me? Is he with me? Is he, at, is he uh, standing beside me? Is he walking through this issue and struggle with me? And when we look to the scriptures, you're absolutely right. It says that God was with Joseph, but it doesn't answer the question, was God, is, with, is God with us? 
And so what we have to do is we have to ask the question this morning, and this is a question I ask all the time. People will say, Tim, how do you study the Bible? Well, one thing I'll do is I'll ask a very simple question. I want you to write this down. It's not in your outlines, but whenever you look at a passage of Scripture, especially, especially when you deal with stories or narratives in the Old Testament, you have to ask the question, is what I'm reading descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive is, quite simply, this. Is what I'm reading, is it telling me a story about someone's life? Well, the answer is yes. We're reading the story about a very specific person, Joseph, in Genesis 39. And God is telling us how he's interacting with Joseph. Now, based on what we read in Genesis 39... It would be hard for us to prescribe upon ourselves that just as God was with Joseph, he's with us. So if someone was to read to you Genesis 39 and say, well, hey, God's with you, you need to respond, but wait a minute, I need more evidence. Just because God was with one person doesn't mean God's with all people, let alone me. And so we're reading a descriptive story about a person. But then we've got to look and ask the question, as we look at Joseph's life and we come to this question, is God with me? He was with Joseph, yes, I got that. Was he with anyone else? And the Bible's clear throughout the scriptures that God was with multiple people. God was with Enoch, and he walked with Enoch. God was with Noah, as Noah built the ark. God was with Abraham, the grandfather, of, a great-grandfather of Joseph. God was with Isaac. God was with Jacob, his own father. God was with Joseph. We learn later on when Joseph is long forgotten in the world of Egypt that God was with Moses. And then when Joshua takes over after Moses dies and leading the people of Israel, Joshua chapter 1 verse 9 says, And I am with you, Joshua, as I was with Moses, the one who was before you. And then we move forward and we see God was with people like Gideon and Samuel and David and Solomon. And we see person after person. So we say, okay, yes, God was with Joseph. And yes, God has been with other people. But it still doesn't answer the question, is God with me? Because at the end of the day, we want to know when the going gets tough, can I turn and look back and see God right alongside of me? So we know that God was with Joseph. We know God was with other people because the Scripture makes that abundantly clear. But what about us? We turn to the New Testament. And Jesus, in speaking with his disciples, announces to his disciples before he ascends to heaven, he says, listen, I want you all, all my disciples, to go and make new disciples. I want you to teach them all that I've taught. I want you to baptize them. And Jesus says the following, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so God says, I'm going to, Jesus says, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send you out to do ministry, and it's going to get tough, and it's going to be hard. And what we're going to learn from history is that the apostles are going to face incredible persecution. And what Jesus is reminding them is, is listen, just as my father was with Joseph, So I, being God, am with you. And I'm with you to the very end of the age. So you need to know, no matter what you find yourself in, I am with you. It goes on even farther, and we learn in the New Testament a couple other times in uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8, where we are told as Christ followers that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No heights, no depth or things present, or things in the past, or things to come, the things of this earth, or things outside of this world. Nothing, nothing your mind can come up with can separate you as a Christ follower from the love of Christ. And then the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for God has said I will never leave you nor forsake you. So therefore, we can confidently say, who? Us as Christ followers. We can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, 
by looking and saying, okay, we're getting a descriptive story. We begin to ask the question, can we prescribe this to ourselves or we can prescribe it to others because it was described of others? And looking through all of Scripture, I am here to tell you that just as God was with Joseph, so he is with every child of God who by faith trusts that he's there. And I've been able to show you that it's not just by taking and proof texting a point in someone's life, but I can look throughout all of Scripture by myriad of authors that this truth is real. And so you can hold on to that. But what does God being with us really mean? What does it mean? What are the benefits of that? One of my last remembrances of my brother uh, was uh, a moment in my first days of high school. I was scared to death of what high school was going to bring as a freshman. And our high school at the time was uh, really a, a, connect, a building that was connected by three hallways, three long hallways. And one of the places where the two of the hallways met was a 90-degree turn. Of course, I'm running late for class. I don't remember what hour it was. But I'm running probably because I couldn't figure out my combination or probably because, uh, let's just face it, I was late for class. And I'm running, and as I'm running I'm to make the turn, I hit what I believe to be a brick wall. And I fall to the floor, and I look up, and it's one of the biggest, baddest juniors that I knew in the school. And he looks down at me, and here's the problem. His books are on the floor all around him. He's not very happy. He picks me up, okay? Not very gingerly, by the way. Puts me up against the locker, And I see him pull back his right hand. I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm a dead man. I close my eyes. That's what girly men do, right? (laughs) I mean, I'm done for. I close my eyes, and I don't want to open them, but he hasn't punched me yet. Wait a minute. I should have been knocked out by now. What's going on? And then I hear a voice. And the voice is a familiar voice. It's the voice of my bigger, badder, senior brother who says, you mess with him, you got to first mess with me. Whew. That's right. (laughs) Get your hands off me. You're lucky today, buddy. I want you to know this morning That as great as it is to have a bigger, badder, older brother in your time of need, nothing compares to having God at your side. And you say, well, him, life's going well. I I don't need him. What we're going to learn today is that in, in a New York minute, as Don Henley said, everything changes, right? My family's experienced that. Two of the most pivotal moments in my life changed in a matter of moments. Everything went from being great to everything being terrible. Everything being filled with joy to the utmost sorrow in that moment. Joseph, let's remember, goes from, and and I don't mean to be funny about this, but I wonder if he's just enjoying his walk to Dothan. God is good. My dad loves me. I'm going to go check on my brothers. Yeah, they don't think much of me, but life is good. I'm going to check on them, come home. My father's going to give me a hug. I'm going to hang out with my family. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to grow up to be an old man, and and I'm just going to enjoy life. And it goes from that to men conspiring to kill him, to being grabbed, to being abused and mocked and scorned and, and beaten, thrown down a pit, left for dead, pleading for your life, and then a group of men you've never seen before, speaking a language you've never heard before, taking you because your brothers have just sold you off, and now you are heading to a place you do not know. All in a matter of seconds. I want to remind you this morning, God help us, this week may be a day, there may be a day that will change our course of life forever. And this message is to remind you that in that moment, God is with you. Now, whether you experience it or not, again, is your choice. You've got to make a decision. Joseph did. And it would change the way he would experience some of the greatest hardships anyone's ever faced. 
So let's notice a couple things this morning. First of all, God was with him, and he's with us in our times of trouble. In our times of trouble. Notice in verse 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. An officer of Pharaoh, Potiphar, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. I want you to notice something about what Moses is saying. Moses is the writer of this. And Moses gives us, anytime you see a word duplicated in a short sentence like that, it should bring you the question, why does he say it like that? He's trying to, in a narrative style or way, to tell you that things are about to turn, they're turning very bad for him. Brought him down there. It speaks geographically. Canaan is to the uh, northeast of where Egypt is. So when we speak about maybe going down to uh, Peoria, we'll say we're heading down to Peoria, okay? So it shares a direction. But he shares it twice, and scholars believe that there is maybe an inference to life is about to go south, no pun intended, for Joseph. It's going to get ugly for him. He's going to go from a place of great uh, safety and satisfaction to a place of great turmoil and pain. He's going to be brought down low. Now notice a couple things about this. Notice first of all that these troubles would begin by people that are closest to him, his brothers. Now we talked a lot about that yes, uh, last week. And we need to recognize that some of our troubles, some of the things that we're most troubled about come within, if you will, our area code, right? They hit close to home. And we need to recognize that, that those who are closest to us at, at many times will be the ones that maybe hurt us the most. Maybe it's a spouse or a child or a, a parent or, or someone that should be seeing or looking out for us who brings us great harm. Notice we don't know the time between Genesis 37 and Genesis 39. It may have been days or weeks. We know that it was a 240-mile journey. Uh, so if you were to uh, walk 10 miles a day, uh, it would take them some time. We don't know if they made it what is a straight shot, if there were other stops, we don't know. But we got to imagine, at minimum, it was a couple weeks of journey, if not a couple months, but depending on the amount of time they spent moving around. And during that time, I want you to put in your mind the heartache that Joseph was going through. First, he was heartbroken. I want you to imagine he's pulled out of the pit. He's probably, again, injured in some way, shape, or form. And these guys start talking. And, and again, we don't know if uh, Joseph knew the language or not. But Joseph was a young guy who had lived his entire life in the land of Canaan. He probably didn't know the languages that were being spoken. And his brothers make a deal with him. And I wonder if Joseph's like, what's going on? Okay, okay when are the cameras going to come out and say that this was just a joke, right? I'm being punked. I'm, being, I'm being, uh, uh, just being a part of a joke. And it's a sick joke, but you know, sometimes jokes go bad, right? Sometimes they hurt, and they didn't mean to be, but maybe the brothers are just having some fun, really wanting him to learn his lesson. And Joseph's like, I've learned my lesson. I won't talk about my dreams. I won't, I won't wear that coat anymore. I got it loud and clear. It's crystal. I won't do that anymore. You've made your point. And then money starts to get transferred. And then these grisly-looking traders grab him, tie him up, hook him to a mule or to a camel, Maybe he's thinking, man, this really can't be happening. But he knows that the first time he doesn't do what they say, and the crack of the whip nails his back. And it gets real serious. This is real life. This is a nightmare. And for the journey, not knowing where he's going, as he's looking back and, and saying, guys, you, you can't be serious. Guys, you can't leave me. What are you doing? He pleads for them to stop. Give the money back. Let's call it even. Let's be done. He makes the long journey, knowing he'll never see his father again, his family, his brother, Benjamin. He'll never know the joy of being at home. He won't experience the love that family brings. 
every remembrance of his homeland gone. I believe in my heart that there weren't probably many Hebrew men that were in Joseph's position. So Joseph is all by himself. Joseph's in a foreign land. He doesn't speak the language, and he's heartbroken. My father came here, emigrated from Iraq in 1966. In the Chicagoland area, he said he knew four people when he came over that knew his language. He said at 17 years of age, he had fallen into such a deep depression because he was in a land he didn't know, where people spoke a language he didn't understand. And he says he was never so lonely and isolated than in those moments. Joseph's heartbroken. Joseph's heartbroken because his life has taken a bitter curve and there's no one to turn to. What would he have done at home? He would have run to his father and his father would have had the answer, right? When our times of struggle, we all got someone we turn to and he's got no one to turn to. Nobody cares about Joseph at this point. He's property. He is to do what people tell him to do and and if he doesn't, to experience the pain and sorrow that comes as a slave who's insubordinate. Notice he's harassed. Lest we forget, Joseph was sold as a slave, purchased with money as if he was property. And he walks all the way to Egypt, and he would experience the harassment that came as a slave. He would be mistreated. He would be abused. He would be given only the basic necessities to sustain life. Listen, there was no prime rib dinner on the way to Egypt. He ate like an animal. He wasn't given anything more than what was needed to make sure he was healthy enough to do the job that would be asked of him. His highest authority was the man with the whip. The man who held his life in balance. There was hard labor. He would be asked to do things that are done against his will. There was no high authority to speak on his behalf. There was no union of servants or slaves, no AFL-CIO to be able to say, hey, you can't do this. This is unfair. This is inhumane. Whatever the boss wanted, he had to do. But how about when he got there? He gets to Egypt, and the sights he must have seen in Egypt must have blown him away. We have good reason to believe that Joseph only lived in a rural setting, and he comes to this monstrosity of a city that Pharaoh had built. The mass of people, the commerce, the architecture, the vices that a major city would bring, the multiplicity of gods that would be around He would have been so overwhelmed. He was a country boy. It would be like having the cast of Mayberry move into South Central L.A. Culture shock at its finest. But unlike a tourist, unlike a businessman who had arrived in Egypt for some personal or business reasons, Joseph came to Egypt as a slave. And the only thing he could expect, listen, was humiliation. Humiliation. We're told that Potiphar buys Joseph in Egypt, verse 1. Potiphar is the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. The captain of the guard of Pharaoh, what does that mean? That means he was Pharaoh's secret police general. He was the guy that, that ran the military police. He was an important guy. He was the one that oversaw the executions. <laughs> As if things were turning around for Joseph, the guy that kills everybody For not obeying Pharaoh is now your master. Good luck with that one. And so he's picked up and he's bought. But let us remember that that wouldn't happen in just a quick handling of money. In Egyptian times, just as has been with all of slavery, uh, you never sell slaves with just one buyer. Supply and demand are two forms of economics that are important to slavery. And so what would happen is, historians tell us, is all the slaves would be brought to a slave auction. And we've studied this in our schools with our own uh, blight of slavery in our own country not so far ago or long ago. And they would be brought in and they would be stripped naked. Think of that, a 17-year-old boy stripped naked. 
He would be forcibly washed to be made presentable. He would be uh, given oil or lard of an animal to put all over his body so he would glisten. So the definition of his muscles and, and uh, his good looks would be pronounced to those. And men and women would come and they would look. And men and women of means would stand before this Joseph completely naked before him. So that people could look at him. They could prod, they could grope, they could, they could have him do all manner of things to see whether or not he was worth the price. Think about what thoughts are going through a 17-year-old person's mind in that type of scenario. He doesn't know what they're saying. They're speaking Egyptian. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Joseph knows the Egyptian language. So everything is just a, it's a chaotic mess in his mind. And then finally someone comes out, a dignified-looking, distinguished-looking individual, Potiphar, points to him and says, listen, I want him. Here's the price. And they grab him, and they forcibly take him down to a new place. Joseph finds himself in times of trouble. And notice what it says. In verse 2, he's brought down there to Egypt. And in verse 2, Moses reminds us, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph experienced some of the worst moments of his life. He thought that his moment, the worst moment was that moment his brothers threw him down the pit. Yeah, that was pretty bad, but now he's got nobody around. I mean, at least to be assaulted by your brothers, at least you know who you're being assaulted by. You can hear what they're saying. You can expect what's going to come because they're speaking in the language you did. But in Egypt, he's got no idea what's coming. It's all new to him. The trial and trouble in his life is, is, is so new to him that he has no way of knowing what's going to come next. And in that moment, just as in our moments of trouble, God is with us. When we don't know what's coming next, when we are still licking our wounds from past hurts and failures and struggles and more come, God says he is with us. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, theologian of uh, uh, the United Kingdom, once said the following, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. God wants us to know that when we are at our lowest, he is with us. We are told in Psalm 46 that God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present ever help in times of trouble. And we need to recognize this morning that we have at our disposal as Christ followers the greatest answer to our problem, God. Not our credit cards, not our money, not even our parents or other people. We've got God who will walk beside us that we will never walk alone. God knows the pain and shame and sorrow. God longs to minister to you in those times. God calls upon you to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. God is with you when you're in the pits. But notice second. God is with us in times of triumph. He's now in Egypt. He's in Potiphar's house. And notice verse 2, the Lord was with him, and Joseph became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Sounds like things are turning around. This is awesome. Joseph finds himself, life is starting to get back to a new level of normalcy. He's a slave. He somehow figured out that this is what I got to do. He knows God's with him. And so he starts doing the tasks that are before him. And what begins to happen is God begins to bring success to him. Now I want you to recognize this morning that I wonder if Joseph was reading this. If Joseph had Genesis 39 before us and he is in the middle of his work day as a slave and he says, and the Lord made him become a successful man. Are you kidding me, God? I'm a slave. You call this success? 
I don't get to do whatever I want. I don't get to go where I want to. I don't get to live where I decide. I don't get to decide what I eat. I don't get to decide where I sleep. I don't get to decide anything in my life. But you have the gall, God, to say I'm successful. I want you to recognize that God determines or defines success in our lives. We don't get to. And so God says, listen, Joseph's successful as a slave. And while he may not have all that he wants, he has all that he needs, and I'm working out this great plan before his very eyes, Joseph's going to be successful. Now notice, how is Joseph successful? Notice in, the, in there that he found favor and that God attended to him. And because of it, his master looks and sees that the Lord is with him and caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So he makes him an overseer of the house and puts him in charge of everything. That the only thing that Potiphar, as it says later, has to worry about is the food he eats. He doesn't have to worry about anything. Joseph has climbed the ladder. How has he done so? By faithfully serving where God had placed him. And God says, when you do things, I'm going to put my stamp of approval on it, and you're going to be successful. And what a great reminder that, listen, in our moments of triumph, he's being successful. But the idea or the thought that God is with us reminds us of two things. Number one, that God empowers our achievements. That God empowers our achievements. Listen, one of the things that we'll do is we'll walk away from this message and we'll say, boy, Pastor Tim, what a great message. Hopefully you'll say that. What a great message. When I need God, he will be there for me. Got it. Awesome. But equally as important is that when I seemingly don't need God... He's there with me as well. You see, we forget that we need God when everything's great, when the bank account's full, when our kids are safe, uh, when, when uh, uh, the job is secure, when our marriages are strong, where everything seems to be going well. We don't need God. We've got things under control. But lo and behold, when something bad happens, we get on the phone and dial 911 and say, God, you got to come. you got to come quickly. I thought I had this under control, but really I don't, and now I need you. God wants you to know that just as he is with you in times of sorrow, so he is when you're triumphing, and here's how. He empowers your achievements. What is it that has allowed you to have a full bank account? What has allowed you to have a healthy marriage? What has allowed you to be healthy? What has allowed you to not find yourself in moments of trial? All of those answers are God. God is the one. God is the one who gives you life and breath. God's the one who enables you to be able to do your job. God is the one who allows you to uh, work for a living and, and have a paycheck every two weeks. It's God. In my world, it's God who sustains the business that I run. It's God who grows this church. God is the one who allows for success. And in those moments, we need to be reminded that our job simply is to do what we're told, to work as hard as we can, and leave the results to Him, to God. At the end of the day, all I can do is the best job I can with the resources I have and the things that are at my disposal, and I have to leave it to God with the results. And that's what Joseph does. He works hard. There's no complaining, belly aching, nothing during his time as a servant. He does what is said, and it is God who causes him to succeed. So listen, business person, this week when you head out to, uh, to work, and that deal goes through, and your boss comes in and says, hey, we would have been lost without you. You're the best salesman we've got. Man, man, you locked in that deal. I want to remind you that in your heart, you may say, thanks a lot, that's really encouraging, but in your heart, you're saying, listen, thanks be to God, I couldn't have done it without you. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of what Jesus says, apart from God, we can do nothing. And so I need him. Each and every hour, I need him. Does that mean that I don't work hard? No, it means I work even harder because I'm working unto the Lord. And so I work and I strive and I do my best knowing i got to leave the results to God. And notice, he empowers our achievements and then he elevates us through advancements. 
Joseph gets elevated from common house slave to the general manager of all the house of Potiphar. And notice what happens. This advancement gives him opportunity. This advancement gives him comfort. This advancement gives him all sorts of things that come with a promotion. And we need to recognize in our achievements and in our advancements, it's all God. It's all God. You're in the role that you are today because God saw fit to make that role or opportunity available to you. We need to recognize that. And what happens is is when promotion comes, we stop and we think, wow, wow, look at all that I've done. Can I just shoot straight with you this morning in my own life? Recently, a couple months ago, a a major ministry uh, came and and talked with me and they said, we've been watching your, your ministry at Village Bible Church. And we want to talk to you. We think we've got an opportunity for you. And you know what came to my heart? Wow, I'm glad they finally noticed. I'm glad. Finally, people are starting to come around to see what I see. I mean, my goodness. What took you so long? You laugh? But that's exactly where my heart was. You're something special. And then I start learning the story on how my name even was brought up. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, no. That has nothing to do with me. I couldn't have put that together if I was given a set of Lincoln Logs. There's no way. It's all on God. It's all God. The Bible says in Acts, uh, we are told that God places us where we're at in our boundaries. He sets fences around us for our good, and he puts us and he places us where we need to be. And I want you to know that no advancement, whether in your education, whether in your uh, vocational life, or in your ministry, whatever you have advanced from point A to point B, it should never leave your mind that it is God who has put me there. He's put me there. Does it mean I don't work hard? No, don't forget that. You work hard. You do your best. You get up and and you do the best job you can. But when advancement and accolades and uh, all kinds of words of affirmation come, you better be saying in your heart, God, apart from you, I could do nothing. Joseph could have never done this on his own, but with God by his side, he could. God is with us in our times of triumph. Finally, God's with us in our times of temptation. In our times of temptation. Oh, we've heard this story. This story, by the way, was made famous as if it needed to be made famous. It was made famous because this plot line is taken and it's put on the big screen with the movie The Graduate and Mrs. Robinson, an older woman. A young man, naive, good-looking. She catches, he catches her attention. Seduction takes place. Here's the crazy thing. This story is thousands of years old. And it could ring true today. Some of us have experienced this type of story. And we've seen it unfold in our lives, and so Joseph's working. Everything's turning around. Man, life is good. Yeah, it's not as good as it could have been, but sure, turning out okay. Man, I, I've turned, lemon, or turned lemons into lemonade. I'm sure that was the inspirational poster that was on, uh, was on Joseph's wall in Potiphar's house, right? Perseverance. I've done it. And things are good. And, and instead of taking orders, now Joseph's getting orders. And what a great boss he would have been because he recognized what it was like to be a slave. And so he's being a kind and gracious boss. And, and everything that they do as a household, whether in the house or in the field, the Scripture says, is blessed. Potiphar is loving having this Hebrew boy in his house. Where did we get this guy? Let's go get ourselves a dozen more. It's awesome since he's been here. By the way, as an aside... Does your employer say that each week you walk into the office? Oh, Tim, you just ruined it for me. Does your boss, when he looks at the payroll, say, man, we'd be lost without this guy or this gal? What they bring to the office, what they bring to the environment. They work hard. They're a great example. 
They succeed in areas that they need to because they somehow, there's something going on. They've got hope and, and man, everything that I would expect in an employee, they, they surpass it. Who do they got with them? What a great reminder as we head into a new work week. That's right, yeah. But then everything changes. At a moment where he's not even thinking about it, all that God had done in his life seemingly comes to a scratching or to a a halt. Screeching halt is the word I was looking for. Hey, Joseph, you look mighty fine to me. Joseph, you work out often? It says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. If you need to understand what that is, just look to your pastor. (laughs) You weren't supposed to laugh at that. He's good looking. He's good looking. and, And listen, and I'm just going to say this, when you are good looking, temptation's going to come. Opportunities like what faces Joseph will come, and, 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 and the Bible's clear about that. So beware. And so temptation comes on the heels of success. Isn't that when temptation usually comes? Now, we talked about it, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we talked just a couple of weeks ago on the subject of lust under our series, The Seven Deadly Sins. We talked about, if you will, the mechanics of it and all that. So let me just share some thoughts, and let me close our time with this. In times of temptation, and in Joseph's time of temptation, we clearly see our situation. We see our situation. What an what a, what a, what a object lesson that's here, a case study. Case study, Mrs. Potiphar, first of all, she reminds us that we have desires, that we have inclinations, that we have hungers, sensual hungers in our body. We are sensual creatures, and, and there will be moments in time where, where our body will cry out, I've got to have that. Joseph walks around doing his job. He's not doing anything that should seemingly uh, get him in any trouble. He's just working, and whatever it is, Potiphar's wife looks and says, I got to have that. I got to. I need that. That is the answer to my problems. I don't know what's going on in the marriage between her and her husband, but she sees an area of lack, and she sees how that lack can be taken care of. And temptation always tells us that. You need something, You can't get it out of your mind, and the devil comes and advertises, this is how you can accomplish that area of lack in your life. This is how you can be filled. And so she says, hey, I'm not being loved, or or I'm, you know, Potiphar is so busy at work, or or I'm neglected as a wife, or or whatever it is. She looks, and and the devil says, hey, Mrs. Potiphar, all you got to do is grab that servant boy who's so good looking and so well built and your problem will be solved. A reminder for us, the devil takes the areas where we see as lack and starts to promote areas where we can get it fulfilled apart from the will and word of God. Number two, on Joseph's side, we see that temptation comes out of nowhere. It comes out of nowhere. We don't see it coming, and that's why, by the the way, we are told by Jesus to pray that our God would not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. Lord, Lord, you know that there's temptations that are before me, all around me, so lead me in a different way. Let me go a different course. Temptation is strong, and temptation comes out of nowhere. Notice number two. We see our situation, and we see the subtle, write that down somewhere, I added that, the subtle and steady onslaught of temptation. It starts out with, hey, how are you doing? Or you sure really look nice today. Some years back, I was preaching a sermon. And I used, without no knowledge of anything, I said, some of you are running into temptations. And where it began was a man in your workplace said he loved the smell of your perfume. At the end of the service, a woman came down and she was trembling. And she said, that exactly happened this week. 
and I was tempted to go all in. Starts out subtle. A look, a word, a thought. What starts out as a spark turns into a fire that is set ablaze. An inferno begins to erupt. And notice she starts with, hey, I think you're cute. Hey, I think you look really great. To, hey, lie with me. To then grabbing him, I've got to have you. It's steady. It says that it happened day after day after day. Some of us are dealing with temptations that we're dealing with them day after day after day. It doesn't end. And we need to recognize this morning that the devil will continually throw things at us, waiting for a moment of weakness in our lives. And then he pounces on us to attack. Notice the third thing, our sin is serious. In verse 8, we see that our sin affects two areas in our life. He refuses his master's wife and says, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in my house, he has put everything in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except you. I can use his car. I can use his summer house. I can eat his food. I can tell his servants what to do. I have got free reign. There's one thing I can't do, and that is I can't touch you. That's his. What a great reminder to some years back when God said, you can do whatever you want in the garden, but there's one thing you can't have. And so he says, listen, I don't want to ruin my relationship with my boss. And and I don't need to look at the staff handbook of Potiphar's house you sleep with my wife, you're done for, right? He didn't need to know that. That's common sense. Stay away. And some of us need to recognize that temptation will ruin our horizontal relationships with others. Listen, I fall the temptation, especially in this way. My wife's going to have something to say about it. My kids are going to have something to say about it. My parents are going to have something to say about it. My father-in-law is going to have something to say about it. The elder team's going to have something to say about it. My friends are going to have something to say about it. You think my relationship's going to be fine with them? No. And so temptation leads us to ruin our horizontal relationships. He says, I don't want to ruin my relationship with Potiphar, so your hand's off. But notice he goes on and he says, listen, the other thing is, is that why this is so serious is how can I do this, verse 9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God, this God who's been with me? This God who's watching after me, this God who's looking out for me, I cannot do this great evil. And so listen, when you give yourself to temptation, you will ruin horizontal relationships, and more importantly, you'll lose and ruin your vertical relationship with God as a result. Our sin is serious, but God gives a sure way out. She grabs him, and instead of having a conversation about it, trying to talk her down, he runs. He leaves his garment. We don't know why, how that all unfolds, but she grabs his garment and and he takes off. And we're reminded, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overcome you except that which is common to mankind, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And so, yeah, she was pretty. Yeah, she was powerful. Yeah, he was a 17-year-old red-blooded Canaanite man who had needs and desires. Yeah, he could have said, you know what, I've had nothing but bad in my life, and here's one opportunity. I'm in a place nobody knows where I'm at. Nobody's going to know. And he runs for his life. He flees. And we need to do the same. God gives us a sure way out. C.S. Lewis put it this way, no man knows how bad he is until he tries to be good, amen? That's a great line. So let me close with this. In times of trouble, in times of triumph, and in times of temptation, God is with you. Now here's the question for you to experience it. 
means that you have to do what Joseph did. You have to walk in obedience. You have to walk in faith. You have to say, God, in this week to come, the good, the bad, the ugly that happens in my life, I'm going to trust that you're with me. I'm going to follow your way and your will, and I'm going to live my life to the best of my ability to bring you glory and honor. And when people applaud me for it, I'm giving you the glory. When people cry for me, I'm going to give you the glory. When things come that I think I need, but your word says I don't, I'm going to give you the glory for the way of escape that God gives. And when you do, you can know that in those good, bad, and ugly moments, God is with you. And sorry, Visa, God is everywhere you need him to be. Let that be true in your lives this week. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you for your time that you've given us to open your word. Now, Lord, send us forth in times of trouble, in times of temptation, and in times of triumph this week that we would know this indisputable fact that you are with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Let us live lives that position us in that way so that whatever comes, we may bring glory and honor to you. Thank you for this time to worship, Lord. Now send us forth so that we can greet one another and speak to one another and show love and concern for one another as your body we ask. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. Go and fellowship with one another.